to this job coming on the air with you and talking to you about the news of the day this is not going to be an easy day this is going to be a difficult day because i don't get to i don't i don't have the luxury tonight of feeding you the red meat that you want to chow down on i i can't like i part of my personality as i'm compelled to tell you exactly what i think even when I know you're not necessarily going to like it, you're not necessarily going to to respond well to my take on a given issue. It's it's what I regard as the added value of this program. You know, you may not always hear things that you agree with, but you will most certainly hear things that provoke your thought and provide you with a perspective that you might not be getting elsewhere. Closing argument. My name is Walter Atson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130-1035 FM. Streaming at TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com and your iHeartRadio app. We are here 9 to 11 weeknights. Appreciate you tuning in. It's always great to have you with us. Catch up on past shows. Do a search for Closing Argument in your iHeartRadio app, and our channel will pop right up there for you. You can participate tonight. I have a feeling many of you will. 651-989-5855 is the number to join us. Brad Omland takes those calls and produces the show. So, you know, I'm actually kind of glad at the end of the show last night, I was bemoaning and Brad and I were both bemoaning the fact that we didn't really get into talking about the news regarding Michael Cohen, uh, amongst other news that had broken yesterday and over the weekend. But I'm actually kind of glad we didn't talk about it yesterday because there's more meat on them, their bones tonight. And we were able to analyze in a more... Uh, robust and comprehensive way this evening than we would have been able to last night. To catch you up, in case for some reason, somehow, you don't know what's going on, you're like, Michael who? What? Cohen? In case you've been colluding in Russia. <laughs> yes, right. In case you've been busy in Moscow, you know, working working for the president or whatever the case may be. Here's what's going on in the good old U.S. of A., according to the Star Tribune. President Donald Trump accused his former lawyer, Michael Cohen, of lying under pressure of prosecution Wednesday as his White House grappled with allegations that the president had orchestrated a campaign cover-up to buy the silence of two women who claimed he had affairs with them. Confronting mounting legal and political threats, Trump took to Twitter to accuse Cohen of making up stories in order to get a deal from federal prosecutors. Cohen pleaded guilty Tuesday to eight charges, including campaign finance violations, that he said he carried out in coordination with Trump. Behind closed doors, Trump expressed worry and frustration that a man intimately familiar with his political personal and business dealings for more than a decade had turned on him yet his white house signaled no clear strategy for managing the fallout at a white house briefing press secretary sarah huckabee sanders insisted at least seven times that trump had done nothing wrong and was not the subject of criminal charges she referred substantive questions to the president's personal counsel rudy giuliani who was at a golf course in scotland Outside allies of the White House said they had received little guidance on how to respond to the events in their appearances on cable news, and it was not clear the West Wing was assembling any kind of coordinated response. So that's the situation. You're no doubt aware of that that much. Uh, From the New York Post, 
there's a little bit more, and I haven't heard too many people talking about this. I'm not sure why, because it seems extremely relevant to me. Michael Cohen is willing to speak with special counsel Robert Mueller about a conspiracy to collude with Russia during the 2016 presidential campaign, his lawyer said on Tuesday night. Cohen, who pleaded guilty earlier on Tuesday to helping President Trump pay hush money to two women, wants to tell Mueller that Trump knew of the infamous 2016 meeting at Trump Tower and the Russian hacking of Democratic institutions before they took place, Lanny Davis told MSNBC. So not only do you have Trump's fixer, Trump's personal lawyer, who has, as indicated in the Star Tribune report, known and intimately worked with Trump for a decade, telling federal prosecutors that he he engaged in campaign finance violations at the behest of, quote, the candidate, unquote, which would be Donald Trump. Not only did he do that, but reports are that he's going to work with Robert Mueller in order to substantiate the whole collusion narrative that we've been hearing about for, you know, since the, the election took place. So them's the facts. That's what's going on. Those are the headlines. Those are the reports. So how do we analyze this? I think we need to look at it from three different angles. And it's, it's important to distinguish between these three angles because you know, they're each important in their own right. And your analysis, you have to focus your analysis on them separately in order to, to be comprehensive, in my view. The first is legal. What are, what are the legal implications of this news? The second is political. What kind of political effect is this going to have on the 2018 election and you know re-election prospects in 2020 and what have you? And then finally, and perhaps most importantly, what are the moral implications of this? How do we analyze this news from a moral perspective? Let's start with the legal scenario. We've been saying on this program and everywhere throughout conservative media, we've been saying up to this point that the, this whole investigation, the, the narrative about collusion with Russia and the investigation into different aspects of the campaign and the administration, up to this point, we've been using a, a phrase somewhere along the lines of there's no evidence, right? It's been two years and there's absolutely no evidence of anything whatsoever. Why are we still talking about this? I have said that over this very air. We can't say that anymore. I can't in good conscience say that anymore. This is an actual legal turning point. We'll get into the politics of it momentarily. But legally, this is a turning point. There is now officially a there there. We can no longer say, because look, regardless of whether, and we'll get into analyzing whether or not Michael Cohen is saying the truth here momentarily. But regardless of whether or not he's telling the truth, regardless of whether or not there's actually something behind the accusation, the mere fact that the personal lawyer of the president of the United States is telling federal prosecutors, my client, the president, instructed me to break federal election law during the campaign. You cannot brush that aside. You cannot dismiss that as insubstantial or unconsequential well i mean michael cohen says it happened stormy daniels says he did it that's a clear-cut case right there having two witnesses attesting right. to the same thing who don't necessarily have aligned interests 
at least not naturally. Yeah, yeah. Now, we can't talk, because this is the second point about the leak. Well, allegedly, Stormy Daniels would be against Michael Cohen because the payoff was the result of threats, or vice versa. Yeah, these are not, these are not uh, you know, it's a bad turn of phrase, but these are not good bedfellows, Stormy Daniels and Michael oh, Cohen. Oh, they are good bedfellows. <laughs> but at any rate, that leads to the second point here, which is that it, we also have to, from a legal perspective, call into question the credibility of Michael Cohen. Like, that's totally, well, like Trump's remarks at that rally, there's a legitimacy, there's a justification to his stance here. That Michael Cohen can't be trusted. Why? Because his testimony is incentivized. There's a piece from 538 that they put out back in April. So long before any of this stuff took place. This is right after Michael Cohen had the raid on his offices. And they talk about the issue of incentivized testimony. And they write, the key question about somebody like Cohen is not only will he flip, but also should we trust him if he does? A Cohen flip would be a big red flag to researchers who study what's known as accomplice witnesses. People who agree to testify against former colleagues and receive, in return, lighter sentences for their own related crimes. These kind of witnesses aren't treated with enough scrutiny by juries, experts said. And the use of accomplice witnesses and other informants by prosecutors is largely unregulated and undocumented. That's led some experts to be suspicious about any case that hinges on testimony from someone who is incentivized to talk. And then they go on to to analyze this concept of incentivized testimony and suggest that it's it very well could be highly unreliable. And the way I phrased this on Twitter today is I said, if you knew that prosecutors paid a witness to testify, you would question the integrity of that testimony. But that's effectively what we're looking at with Michael Cohen. Decades off your prison sentence is certainly a thing of value. You know, the, the, the idea that it's, it's very easy to imagine a scenario where prosecutors are hovering over Michael Cohen, flashing the proverbial bright light in his face, making him sweat, telling him, this is what you're facing. We're going to send you to prison for 45 years. But if you cooperate with us and you tell us what we want to hear, we can cut you a deal and we can get you a lighter sentence. Well, at that point, it doesn't matter whether what they want to hear is true or not. He's incentivized to tell them what they want to hear. Now, we have to, we have to consider that. What, what that indicates, though, isn't that we can throw out what Michael Cohen is saying here, all it indicates is that we need substantiating evidence. We need corroborating evidence. And my instincts tell me that evidence exists. It, it, because if they don't, if, if they're hanging their hat entirely on Michael Cohen's testimony, then politically, Trump's argument here is going to prevail. Because you've got Donald Trump and the full force, the full political force of Donald Trump on one side. And on the other side, you've got the word of Michael Cohen, which is questionable on a number of different levels. And so my instincts tell me there is substantiating evidence likely to show up here. And that's something that we need to keep an eye out for. Another legal repercussion of this is that this this does serve and you're seeing it in the rhetoric that's being employed uh, on you know places like MSNBC that I stomach for about 10 minutes today. 
this is going to serve as justification for the continuation of these investigations, whether it's Robert Mueller or now these these other investigations, these other avenues or, or lanes, if you will, of investigation. It's going to serve as a justification for that. We're not going to see the end of this. And the genie is out of the bottle at this point. We're now past the point where Donald Trump unilaterally can put an end to these investigations because this is not Robert Mueller. Robert Mueller didn't bring these charges. Robert Mueller didn't cut this plea deal. This is a separate process that Trump has no control over whatsoever. And so it's now beyond the the collusion investigation, and it's beyond the purview of Robert Mueller and beyond the purview of the executive branch in this administration. And, you know, honestly, on its face, the... These uh, this accusation of being guilty of campaign finance laws or campaign finance violations, that's worse from a both a legal and I would argue a moral standpoint than the notion of collusion. Because collusion, and this is one of the things we've, all, again, been saying for a long time, collusion isn't a crime. Collusion is nothing. Collusion is this this idea that's been thrown out there that has no real legal definition or repercussions whatsoever. And so Mueller's investigation into collusion has been a a vague and somewhat bizarre affair of trying to prove something that even if you proved it wouldn't result in in charges against anybody at all necessarily. But this is different. There are laws against what Donald Trump is accused of having done. There are laws against what Michael Cohen is confessing to have done. And so in in a very particular and meaningful way, there's more of a there there now as a result of this campaign finance law investigation than there ever could have been coming out of Robert Mueller's. We'll continue when we return. 651-989-5855. Closing argument. My name is Walter Edson. Twin Cities News Talk. AM 1130, 103.5 FM. TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. We're analyzing the news, the situation with Michael Cohen pleading guilty to violations of federal campaign finance law and implicating the president in having given those orders, having been the one who instructed him to do so, instructed him to break the law. And we're trying to analyze it from three different perspectives. You know, we spent the first segment talking about the legal angle on this. And I want to get into talking about the politics of it and the morality of it here momentarily. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130-1035 FM. You can join us at 651-989-5855. So the in a nutshell, the legal situation is there's a there there now. This is real. This has to be dealt with. This can't be brushed aside. The Mueller investigation now has a perpetual fuel. It's never going to end until Trump's presidency does one way or the other. And the genie is now out of the bottle in terms of this no longer being about collusion, if it ever even was. And a collusion isn't even the 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 big issue here at this point. You have an actual federal client crime that somebody has pled guilty to and implicated the president that's not going away so how do how do we analyze the politics of this though now legally there's a there there politically i'm not so sure politically i don't see anything and you know granted at this point all i have is anecdotal but i don't see anything that indicates this moves the needle one way or the other for people who have strong feelings about donald trump 
either pro or con. You know, if you're a hardcore Donald Trump supporter, certainly if you're a hardcore Donald Trump supporter who I've seen in my social media feeds, you don't care about this at all. If anything, it just it only solidifies your support of the president and uh, keeps you in that camp. And, you know, and the it's indicated in the exuberance that remains at his rallies that he's conducting even under this scandal. And if you're somebody who thought he was the worst thing ever, you know, the second coming of Hitler and the rise of fascism in America and what have you, if you thought that before, you still think that now. So the question becomes, are there independents, are there people in the middle who are malleable, whose opinions are going to be swayed on this? And that's to be determined. It, who knows? We'll see. I, I kind of doubt that this is going to have a strong political effect in the sense of where voters end up hanging their hat. But what it does, the, uh, the political consequence it does have for sure is that Democrats now have something solid that they can hang their impeachment hopes on. So if they win legislative control in these midterm elections, you can bet they absolutely will pursue impeachment at this point. Because now they have, they have an actual crime that they can point to and say, here's our justification. Now, whether or not it actually arises to the standard of high crimes and misdemeanors is a, is a separate debate, a legal debate, but politically, impeachment is a political process. It's not a legal process. It's a political process. And so the politics exists in order to justify uh, impeachment if Democrats gain that legislative control. So that's something to keep in mind as we head into the midterm elections. And the last political point I have on this is that th this whole thing is a huge distraction from everything Republicans would rather be talking about right now. You know, in these final two months leading up to the, the midterm elections with a whole lot at stake, both nationally and in the several states, Republicans want to be talking about the tax cuts. They want to be talking about the economy doing well. They want to be talking about the, their efforts to, to affect what they regard as the ideal on immigration and building the wall and what have you. And all of those talking points, all of those topics that they would like to be engaged in, that they feel they have an advantage in talking about, all of those have been swept off the table for the time being as a result of this news. And so the question becomes, how long is that distraction and subsequent distractions that result from continuing developments in this story going to keep Republicans off balance and keep them from being able to make the case they'd rather be making on the campaign trail in an election year? And finally, the last angle I want to look at this from is the moral angle, which is probably the most important and I have two thoughts on this. First of all, the the concept of campaign finance restrictions as such. We had a a text or a text, a tweet from Anthony from St. Paul, regular caller into the program. He tweeted, I didn't realize using your own money was a breach of law. And of course it is, right? Like that's what campaign finance restrictions are, is a restriction on your capacity to use your money in order to express your thoughts. It's it's a de facto violation of the First Amendment, in my opinion. I, I, I don't know how you can argue otherwise. That telling me that I can't use my resources in order to express my thoughts isn't a violation of my First Amendment rights to free speech. But, you know, that's the world that we live in. That's the, that's the legal reality. Legally, a crime has taken place here if Cohen's guilty plea is, is true and if his accusations are true. Legally, a crime has taken place. Morally, 
Hmm, not so much. Morally, the idea, at least in so far as using your own money, all right, like the, we, we can have a separate conversation about stepping out on your wife and sleeping with porn stars and paying them off to keep them quiet. But the idea of using your own money in order to affect your own campaign or anybody else's campaign, that's not something that anybody ought to be able to throw you in jail potentially for doing. Well, the quote-unquote political consequences of his moral choices, I was arguing with some people on Facebook today about, like, oh, well, you know, Trump's made it pass so much, like, this would be nothing. And they're right. If we would have known that he slept with a porn star during the election, I think he still would have been elected. Yeah, and, and that's, that's, that is another aspect of this, is the assumption that the, the news coming out would have affected the election or would have had a, given us President Hillary, God forbid, is an assumption. It's just that. It's an assumption. I mean, I think it's true, though. And I mean, but now that it's turned from breaking something that might be questionably morally, it's now illegal. And that's the problem. Yeah. And the last moral point on this, and, you know, this is, this is the one you're probably going to like the least of all my analysis on this Cohen situation. Turns out character still matters. You know, one of the one of the chief one of the things that I'll never forget from the 2016 campaign and the the internal intra party argument we had over the emergence of Donald Trump was this phrase: "We're electing a president, not a pastor." We're electing a president, not a pastor. The implication being that there's apparently no correlation between the characteristics that you would like to see in a pastor and the characteristics you would like to see in a president. That it's it's perfectly fine and perfectly okay to be a philanderer and a liar and, you know, all, all these things that Trump has, to varying degrees, demonstrated himself to be shamelessly and flagrantly. And, you know, that's okay because we need somebody who's going to fight. We need somebody who's going to take it to the left. And that's more important than moral character. Well, maybe. Maybe it is. I don't know. Maybe like strategically, tactically, he did beat Hillary, right? I mean, you can't argue with political results, but this too is a political result. This too is a consequence of deciding to minimize the importance of character. We would not be ha- sitting in, in this situation if it was President Cruz or President Rubio or President literally anybody else who was seeking the Republican nomination. I think that's a point that needs to be considered. 651-989-5855. Closing argument. My name's Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. Uh, oh, is right. Trump in some degree of trouble. Yet to be seen what exactly that's going to end up looking like, how, how much it sticks. He's endured quite a bit. We got a piece here that we don't have time to get into tonight. That reason put together the 15 times that Trump's campaign and or administration has been declared basically over or dead on arrival or that there's been some massive turning point that was going to derail his momentum. And none of those proclamations turned out to be true. And I do appreciate the fact that, you know, this is yet another one of those. But I'm reminded also of the boy who cried wolf, right? Like the the idea that just because wolf has been cried falsely a lot of times in the past doesn't mean that a wolf hasn't actually shown up this time. 
doesn't mean that there isn't actually a legal there there in this instance. And we've been analyzing the situation with Michael Cohen and his guilty plea and the implications, both legal, political, and moral, here on Closing Argument. My name's Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. Streaming at com and your iHeartRadio app. We're here 9 to 11 weeknights, 651-989-5855. Lots of people engaging on this topic. Always appreciate it when you call into the program. Brad Omelin takes those calls and produces the show. Barry in St. Paul, thanks for holding. So, I guess I got two questions or points or whatever. But so, how is it not Cohen's responsibility to tell Trump when he says this is what I want to do? This isn't legal. Let's find a different way to do this. That's a solid point. <laughs> it's yet another lapse on his part in terms of you know there was the him recording Trump without his knowledge, which is not a very good uh, service to your client. And then failing to reply when your client asks you to do something that's against the law. Hey, we shouldn't do that because it's against the law and I'm your lawyer. That's a bad idea. Yeah, and, and then the other side of it is, is how does this not prove that, that the way the republic was founded mm-hmm. is no longer the way it's ran? Like, it, it proves who you are defines what happens to you legally. Like. Like, the whole thing that happened with Scott Walker and Wisconsin when they were going after everybody and anybody who donated large sums of money to his campaign, right? And the same thing's happening to Trump, just on a bigger scale. Yeah, I'm not sure I followed the through line there, but I I appreciate the input as always, and that's definitely something that's worth taking a look at. There's a theory in criminal justice that justice is served best at the top of the social pyramid, like, take, for example, the Michael Jackson case. The coverage, the investigation, the the deliberation around it, you could say. He Because he is famous, he received the, the best the process has to offer. And Trump is uh, receiving the same. Like, I saw a tweet from some New York Times journalist last night that said something along the lines of, well, because of who Trump is, he's being protected. It's like... No, actually, he's actually getting the most deliberate process. Absolutely, and and that's and that's what's happening now, and that's ha- how it's always been since yeah. the founding of the republic. Um, and to Barry's first point, yeah, uh, Michael Cohen should have told him that that was illegal, but that's why uh, Michael Cohen is facing jail now. Well, and it's also why Trump was right when he tweeted out earlier today that Michael Cohen is a really bad lawyer that, that you sh- that you shouldn't hire. That was an amazing tweet. <laughs> like, I don't like Trump, but that was a great tweet. <laughs> All right, let's talk to Charles in St. Paul. Welcome to the program. Yes, hello, Walter. Long-time listener, second-time caller. All right, appreciate it. Um, I have some necessary whataboutism. Um, Bernie Sanders was uh, investigated by the SEC for some sort of campaign finance violation. Mm-hmm. Barack Obama, while he was president, uh, paid a $2 settlement or fine right. to campaign finance violations. Right. Hillary Clinton was also uh, accused or alleged or investigated, something along those lines. So my question for you, Walter, is why is it that only Republicans have to, or why is it that only Republicans are prosecuted? Well, and that's a good question for the prosecuting attorneys, and I think we know the answer, right? I mean, obviously, it's the it's the the bias in the system against Republicans, against conservatives. The point remains that offering the whataboutisms 
is not going to be a compelling legal argument. Like the the legal reality here is not going to change. Now the political reality might. Like you can go out and on the campaign trail and make those whataboutism claims and see if maybe people say, yeah, that's bad. We should vote for you guys in in response to that. But uh, I, the utility of it seems limited. Yeah, I, I agree with what you're saying. But earlier when you were talking about how politically this will not move the needle, mm-hmm. I am in that camp. I am a hardcore Trump fan. I right. own two MAGA hats, mm-hmm. uh, hoping to get more. And, uh, you know, I if anything solidifies my vote for him in 2020. Well, there you go. And that's, that is consistent with what I've been hearing and seeing uh, from, from folks who are in, of the MAGA crowd. I appreciate your contribution, Charles. And, you know, that doesn't surprise me because here's the thing. And I, I actually have a high degree of sympathy for it. I really do. Sympathy? Yeah, I do. I do. Because the, there is this sense, and it is there is a a high degree of justification to the sense that to be a Republican and to be a conservative in in this country at this time is to be under attack on all fronts from all directions by the culture and by institutions. Now I know you know you say this to to the left, you say this to left your lefty friends, your lefty family, or to you know Democrats that you run across or whatever, and they're going to laugh you off and say, "How can you possibly say that when a Republicans in the White House, Republicans are control of the House and the Senate?" Yeah, Republicans have won some elections. That's absolutely true, but the institutional control of virtually everything, both public and private remains largely in the hands of people who are center left to hardcore left and they're utilizing collectively utilizing their their collective influence and power to do everything they can to both undermine this administration both in terms of its agenda and its credibility and what have you and also to attack individual people for being anything less than woke and so in that context the, it creates this mentality where people feel like they have to stick together through thick and thin no matter what and let certain things slide, up to and including campaign finance violations. But conservatives and Republicans who su- are supporting Trump through this deserve to be laughed at, mocked, and ridiculed. Because you're betraying your own values for ultimately Trump, who really, at the end of the day, doesn't care about you. He doesn't. Trump does not care about you. He is a politician. He is a businessman who cares only about himself. He is the quintessential narcissist. And I don't know. I thought two months ago it was uh, biblical to enforce the law. I thought that uh, conservatives who cited the Bible uh, didn't condone activity with porn stars. Uh, I don't know. You're betraying your own values. And you can see right through it. I am just laughing at conservatives because... You're you're laying it on the line for Trump. It ain't gonna win you the day. I I actually have the opposite view, not in terms of the fundamentals of what you're saying, but in terms of the effect. I think it very well may win the day. It might lose the long sure. game, right? Like this this moment and this presidency might turn out to be just fine in spite of all this stuff, but I think there will be long-term consequences to making the types of moral sacrifices that you're alluding to there. Let's squeeze in Chris in Minneapolis. Thanks for holding. Hey, Walter. How's it going? Good. Yeah, uh, 
Oh, I just got something kind of chaps my ass. Um, the legislator or House and Senate or whatever they they voted in to give two hundred fifty nine million dollars or whatever to defend illegal aliens that sneak here. And <sighs> well, I I don't I'm not sure what you're referencing. Um, they they had a bill where they're gonna give a bunch of money to the people that sneak here to defend them against our government who's prosecuting them. Who put that forward? I don't know. I even heard Nick Zerwas talking about it earlier in the week. Okay. They, they, they had a vote, and they're, they're giving 200 and whatever million dollars to defend the people that snuck here defend them against our government who's prosecuting them and it, it yeah no you i you know I, what i'm saying i understand the what you're saying i'm not familiar with the story we'll take a look at it over the break here but uh it, you you have unwittingly provided a nice transition to our next topic here which is going to be the molly tibbet story and uh yeah, the analysis yeah, that's of that you, oh another thing yeah some guy snuck here a few years ago and killed my cousin he snuck in from mexico and killed my cousin. It was a mistaken identity. He was trying to kill somebody else, but my cousin was there, and he got killed. Mm-hmm. And it was on 48, uh, that show, Another 48. Uh-huh. And they got him, and he's in prison now. But, yeah, he's like these... Did he do it with a gun? sneaking over here and then killing people. It's like, I don't know, just kind of struck a nerve, and then we're giving him money to de- defend him against our government who's prosecuting him. I just... Um, I can certainly understand your frustration, and we'll address that when we return. 651-989-5855, TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. Can't explain all the feelings that you're making me feel. All right, I wanted to have or take a lot more time on this Molly Tibbetts story than we're going to have tonight. And, you know, who knows? If you guys start calling, we start talking about it, maybe we'll talk about it a little bit longer than than uh, I'm currently planning. Oh, but they're I, coming. <laughs> I definitely want to address it because I have to say, and you know, this, what I'm about to say about this story maybe, and this is, this is saying something, maybe the most controversial thing, the most controversial take, the most controversial position that I've ever expressed over this air on this program since it started. And I and I say that because I'm really kicking the hornet's nest here. I've got the down button ready. <laughs> for me or for them? For them. Okay. Uh, because I'm, I'm really kicking the hornet's nest of emotion here. Right now, particularly in this moment, fresh off the terrible news about Molly Tibbetts' heinous murder by an illegal immigrant, by somebody who was covered by DACA. Right now, it's fresh in our minds, it's fresh in our hearts, it's an open wound, and there's a lot of emotion. And that emotion is being channeled and being leveraged for political effect in order to advance the immigration agenda that the GOP has adopted in the Trump era. Build the wall, deport the illegals, end DACA, Etc. 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 Now, I'm not interested 
for for this for the purposes of this point, I'm not interested in debating the merits of any particular immigration policy. Whether or not we ought to build the wall, separate question from what I'm about to say here. Whether or not we ought to enforce immigration law as it stands in the books right now, separate consideration from what I'm about to say. Whether or not we ought to end DACA and deport people in mass, separate consideration. What I have a problem with is this particular style of argument, and it goes something like this. If the law had been enforced, if we didn't allow people to come here from Mexico or from countries that we don't like, this murder would not have happened. Therefore, ergo, we should change the law so that people can't immigrate here. It's a style of rhetoric. Let me give you an example from the left of how they employ this exact same style of argument in a way that we all agree, we all understand is incorrect rationally, logically, and morally. They'll say something along the lines of, you know, if we have an assault weapons ban or if we have universal background checks or if we in some other way violate your Second Amendment rights, and it saves one child's life, why then it's worth it. We absolutely positively should proceed with common sense gun reform, common sense gun control legislation, and if it only saves one person's life, why that's worth it. And anytime there's a shooting, anytime you know, some child is killed with a gun, or, or a school is shot up, or a church is shot up, they come out of the woodworks with their argument of, now it needs to happen, now we need to move forward, with our agenda on gun control. Well, taking the news about Molly Tibbetts and immediately pivoting from it to the immigration agenda is the exact same tactic, utilizing the exact same logic in exactly the same collectivist and irrational way. Because here's the thing. The people who would be affected by changing immigration laws are not, you know, however many millions of them they are, they're not millions upon millions upon millions of murderers, right? This, this is treating people in, a, in one category as if they're all guilty of a particular crime. This is how it's worded over at Cato. They had a piece on this. The terrible murder is already feeding into a political firestorm. People with a political axe to grind, those who want to distract from the recent conviction of Paul Manafort and plea deal for Michael Cohen, and partisans who want to compare Tibbetts' murder to the shooting of Kate Steinle, is an effort to impact the upcoming November elections, already using the tragic murder of Tibbetts as an argument for increasing the enforcement of immigration laws against people who aren't charged with murder or any real crime except violating international labor market regulations immigration laws. They want to convict all illegal immigrants of this murder in the court of public opinion, not just the actual murderer. Scarce law enforcement resources should be devoted to solving and deterring the most serious crimes regardless of who commits them. That is the best policy for saving American lives. That means that increased enforcement of our immigration laws is not a good way to prevent murders. Illegal immigrants are less likely to be incarcerated for crimes in the United States than native-born Americans. Texas is the only state that keeps data on the number of convictions of illegal immigrants for specific crimes. And then they go into an analysis where they broke down and they discovered that in point of fact, 
the the number of homicides that took place in 2016 in Texas that were committed by native-born Americans was you know, about twice as much as that committed by illegal immigrants and about three times, over three times, those committed by legal immigrants. Which leads to this point, which is this. You could use this same logic to justify literally any law that violates somebody's rights. You could say, you know, if we only had a law, like you could make it racial, right? You could say, if we only had a law that made Mexicans illegal just as a group, then this murder wouldn't have happened. If we only had a law that imprisoned men, then this murder would not have happened. I mean, you can you can take any category that the guy happens to fit into and make that illegal or imprison him for it and make the case that the murder would not have happened. But that doesn't mean that the law you're pointing to or the hypothetical you're pointing to is morally justified. I'm not a big fan of this reasoning. I don't like it when the left does it, and I don't like it when we do it either. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. of Liberty Hour on Twitter. Our caller was referencing, you know, he was saying Congress, and that's what threw me for a loop, because I, I couldn't comprehend how the Republican-controlled Congress would be voting or even introducing a bill to pay money for lawyers to defend people who are facing deportation. That didn't make any sense to me at all. But they, what's actually happened locally from the Star Tribune that starting next month, Hennepin County will provide legal representation to residents facing deportation who cannot afford an attorney. The county board approved a $275,000 contract with Mid-Minnesota Legal Aid and two other legal organizations in a split vote Tuesday. The groundbreaking decision makes the county one of the few jurisdictions in the Midwest to represent residents in deportation proceedings. So there you go. If you live in Hennepin County, your tax dollars are being provided to provide legal representation to people who have broken the law. That's <laughs> uh, that is that is infuriating. I, I, I got to say, like, regardless of where you are on the question of immigration and what the ideal immigration scenario ought to be, the idea that we're going to, as a county, we're going to pay for people's lawyers to defend themselves against deportation proceedings. Pretty nonsensical. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 1035 FM. Streaming at com and your iHeartRadio app. We're here 9 to 11 weeknights. Pleasure having you with us. 651-989-5855 is the number to join us. Brad Ullman takes those calls and produces the show. Let's go to Barry in St. Paul. Hey, thanks for letting me on again. So, so here's my question. So... It's already illegal for employers to hire people who are illegal immigrants, right? So they have to take reasonable efforts to ensure that they aren't. And and so when they aren't doing that, and like let's say this person was hired by somebody, some packing plant or whatever down there that he's working at, or or Cup Foods or whatever down there that he's working at, that's why he came to this country to be able to make money. Okay, right. let's be honest yep. here. Mm-hmm. That's, that's right. why he's here. So why aren't people 
like conservative groups going after these employers, like sponsoring people like this that are affected by this kind of stuff? They are. To go after employers, to sue them, to be able to make it so so that that they don't want to hire these people. They are. And point of fact, now there's a piece here at the Star Tribune that talks about the the suspect in this case. He was working at a farm in Iowa that it just so happens to have been owned by a, a Dane Lane. It's the Yarrabee Farms in Brooklyn, Iowa. And it turns out that Dane Lane is a big Republican donor. He's a big fan of Donald Trump and Oops. and uh, is is one of one of uh, one of us, so to speak. And he has come under fire. His they've received death threats. They've had threats to have their buildings burned down on their farm and what have you. Now I know I realize that that's not the type of action that you're advocating for or calling for in terms of conservatives fighting back against you know people who hire illegal immigrants. But they are definitely facing pressure, uh, no doubt, as a result of this. Now, it it deserves to be said, however, that in this case, Dane Lane, you know, you talk about there being uh, taking reasonable efforts to verify people's uh, ability to work. In point of fact, he did go through the verification process. Now, he didn't use e-verify, I guess, but what he did was he submitted the he ran the guy's social security card that he provided and his his identity out of state. Uh, photo ID that he provided, and it, it all checked out. So there was nothing that he failed to do under the letter of the law. But you know, one of the arguments that I've heard made is, well, why aren't people utilizing E-Verify? Well, well, it wasn't a matter because he was under DACA, from what I understand. So he he would have technically been here legally because he's still under DACA. But I just mean as a whole that that would push people not to want to come here because they can't get jobs anyway. Yeah. I take your point. Appreciate the call, Barry. I don't like that idea. I thought that conservatives like small business owners. Well, and I thought, you know, we were into freedom of association and lowest highest value at the lowest cost and, you know, things like that. My my problem with e-verify, I mean, just think about what the implications of e-verify are. In order to be able to engage in the most fundamental activity of human life, which is productivity, earning a living, gaining the value you need in order to not just thrive, but survive. In order to do that, I need to go to the state, to his royal majesty, and get permission. I need to have, I need to be verified as an official worker in order to put food in my mouth and on the table for my children. Just fundamentally, morally, I don't like that. I understand what people are getting after with E-Verify. I understand the desire. From a practical perspective, the logic is flawless, right? Well, of course, the economic incentive is what draws people here. So let's undermine the economic incentive by going after employers and by making it difficult for people to find jobs once they arrive. But the point that we ought to be taking away from this is that anytime you intervene in something that like morally is not a crime like getting a job is not a moral crime against another human being it's it's a inherently voluntary transaction and so when you take action to intervene in that it necessitates more intervention bad government breeds bad government and you're always going to need to have some other new response you know e-verify in this case you're always going to have to to up your ante in order to plug the holes that 
naturally emerge in your effort to keep human beings from doing what they naturally and morally ought to be able to do. Let's talk to Mike in Farmington is next up. Welcome to the program. Thanks for taking my call, Walter. Um, uh, can you hear me all right, sir? Yeah. Oh, great. Uh, I listened to the the radio station quite a bit, you know, and I heard, uh, you often hear these things like this, uh, these, these fraud or identity thing, I think Rush advertises it. Yeah. And you're yeah. going to get an alert. And then I recently heard something today I thought was interesting, but I was really surprised that it isn't already being done is, well, let's say your social security number gets a hit somewhere mm-hmm. in Hawaii. Mm-hmm. Somebody's trying to use your number. Yeah. Why you wouldn't be notified that, hey, something's up and there's something going on here. Well, I imagine it's a question of infrastructure. You know, you have to have a system in place that would result in such notification, and that no doubt costs a significant amount of money. Well, we got money to, uh, you know, represent people in Hennepin County that break the law <laughs> and use up the taxpayer dollars for that, apparently. Sure. Yeah, I don't know. Um, if, I don't know if you could get it done for two hundred fifty thousand dollars, but you know, you know maybe. And um, you know, this whole thing—the Democrats claim that you know, oh, we're we're looking out for the little guy, and mm-hmm. you know, I wonder what it feels like to be really to be responsible for the really the deaths of American citizens. I mean, there's things they could have done. And Trump did offer a, a great deal, but the mm-hmm. Democrats didn't take him up on it. They, they want to continue to use this issue as a political so, issue. So Just let me, like the Mueller investigation, that you know what? That's going to run all out of gas once we hit the midterms. That's going to just go away. Well, maybe. I, you know, I certainly I won't discount any possibility at this point. I've definitely been proven wrong in political prognostication before, but I want to push back on you a little bit on this this notion of you know Democrats having blood on their hands uh, as a result of their positions on immigration, because literally the same argument can and has been made against Republicans when it comes to gun control. Every single time we have one of these mass shootings, the Democrats run to the nearest camera, run to the nearest microphone to make the case that Republicans, including President Trump, have blood on their hands, the blood of children, because they fail to act on common sense gun legislation. So how is it? Because we reject that. I know you reject that that narrative when it comes to to gun control. How do we then in turn apply that same style of reasoning to our positions on immigration? What's the difference? And I don't I don't discount the possibility that there is a difference, but I'm interested in your take on what that difference is. Well, I guess one is the right to be you keep and bear arms, mm-hmm. the, the Second Amendment. Mm-hmm. Now, do do we want to put it to a vote? Do we just essentially want to just say no one can own, own a gun anymore? We're just going to take all the guns away from everybody. Uh, look at what goes on in Chicago every weekend. That has some of the most stringent gun control laws. Right. But, yes, yeah. the police won't even enter certain neighborhoods. Right. Yeah, it's really not working out for him in Chicago. Yeah, and, and 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 when you go to the issue of the border, here it is. I mean, this is a this is a cherry picked issue for Trump again because it proves all his points. Uh, yeah, and, politically, you're absolutely right. This is and then this the is other part easy. of it is, and I'm really disappointed about this. 
and I think Brad chimed in on it as well, but until you go after these businesses, all they need to do is cherry-pick a few businesses, do their intelligence, go after them, prosecute them, put, put, put a herd on them, where now businesses are going to have to really get real. I mean, if that guy was here legally, I mean, he, can't even, he couldn't even speak the language. He needs a translator. He's been here how many years? <laughs> when he was taken in for his arraignment? Uh, you know, connect the dots here. Something's not right here. Was the person who sold the Parkland shooter a gun responsible for the shooting? The person who showed... You're talking about Mr. Cruz. Correct. You know who I think is responsible for that? President Obama and that justice program they had. How do you like that? I don't buy it. How many times did that guy pass through the authorities... And the Obama administration established that program. That And th- why did they establish that program, guys? Because they felt that certain groups or racial groups were being unfairly targeted, and I totally disagree with that. If, if people are not behaving properly, that's their fault. They need to get right with the law and obey the law. Like so many things in our society... If people would just obey the law, but, you know, you see so many things now where everything is kind of falling apart, where people that are criminals are getting represented, and, and the people that obey the laws and keep their head down and follow the rules, who's, who's speaking for them? And that's where I go right back to the Democrats again. They don't give a hoot. And I'll throw the Republicans in there, too. you got your John McCain's and George yeah. Bush's. They're soft. I, I take your point, Mike. I take your point, Mike. I appreciate you calling in to make it, and uh, I certainly understand why uh, Trump continues to thrive w- w- amongst Republicans and on the political right, given uh, the the current climate. Sounds like a red herring. Continue. Mike's argument, his last part about Democrats, was just a red herring. I the. The issue that I have and what you were getting after, at least what I perceived that you were getting after, Brad, with your comment, is that there's a lack of consistency here. There's a yeah. real a real lack of consistency in terms of how we process legal principles and moral principles. You know, the the idea that when when and I use I go to gun control because it's such a clear distinction in terms of how people on the right typically react versus how people on the left typically react on the right. When there's a gun crime or some sort of gun tragedy, we've we're very quick to correctly. And we're absolutely correct. When we do this to pin the responsibility on the shooter, we don't hold the person who sold them the gun responsible. You know, we don't place responsibility on, on other gun owners who didn't shoot somebody or kill somebody. And we understand how that works both morally and legally. But then when it comes to a situation like this, uh, somebody who's in the country illegally commits a heinous crime and murders a girl, we we throw all those principles out the window and suddenly all illegal immigrants are responsible for it. The, the, the politicians are responsible for it because of the status of the laws and what have you. You got to pick your poison. Like, which is it? What's your paradigm? Well, again, just like a lot of Republicans and conservatives buying into Trump more, uh, you know, like our caller said last hour, I'm voting for Trump in 2020 because of this. It's, again, just selling out your values to vote for Trump. It is everything for the cult of personality that is Donald Trump.
651-989-5855. Closing argument. My name's Walter Atz in Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. Kicking the hornet's nest tonight. Started off with a unconventional opinion on the Michael Cohen situation. And then uh, double down with a equally, if not more so, unconventional response to the Molly Tibbetts tragedy and the political narratives that have spawned from it. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, 651-989-5855. I'm going to go to Ben in Roseville. Welcome to the program. Hey, Walter. Uh, thanks for having me on. I uh, just started listening to you guys, and I think you guys do a great job. It's a good show. Um, just want to talk a little bit about kind of the difference between the gun versus immigration argument. I think it differs a little bit in that the gun control argument is, uh, is a call to change the laws or make the uh, prerequisites more strict or change the Constitution, whereas you know, the calls to, uh, you know, curb immigration, the calls with immigration have to do with enforcing existing, existing Yep. law and you know someone comes into the country illegal you know they're a criminal um so you know I, i'm not you know i i guess i i like to to give people the benefit of the doubt but i do see where this argument is coming from with with the calls for immigration like hey it's it's an existing law let's just enforce things better so if it's something like a wall or vetting people better that is enforcing an existing law that our country does have so um yeah that's definitely a distinction that's definitely a distinction the the the, on the one hand you have advocacy for changing the law to something it currently isn't and on the other you have advocacy for enforcing the law as currently written that's definitely a difference i don't know i have to think about it to what extent that actually has an effect on the moral analysis but i i think it is a significant point Appreciate the call, but, but building the wall is a law. It's a policy. It's a law. Like Trump has to pass a law to build the wall, right? Sure. So that you're, it's more than just. But I think Ben's point is that in this case, with the specific argument of if we enforced our laws as written, this guy wouldn't have been in the country. Therefore, the murder of Molly Tibbetts wouldn't have happened. It is a the law being that the employer didn't use e-verify. No, the law being that you don't get to live here. In other words, we should be deporting people who cross the border illegally. But isn't you know people say well, uh, owning a gun is a constitutional right. Being here illegally is not right. But it's more than a constitutional right. It's a natural right. Yeah, and I'm with I'm with you on that, and I know exactly where you're going, and I and I agree. With the point you're making there, I, there's still something significant. And I need to take some time to think about it to put my finger on what it is. But there is something significant about the difference between advocating for the enforcement of law versus advocating for the changing of law. I'll have to put some thought into that, and maybe we'll touch back on it you know, tomorrow or something. Let's talk to Thomas in Blaine. Welcome to the program. Thank you for taking my call. Anytime. So, um, yeah, uh, I think the, the comparison here, you were talking about how Republicans um, trying to use their same argument for um, immigration um, is kind of redirected 
I think it should be looked at as, hey, we ha- we don't know who's coming in our, in our country. Mm-hmm. And I understand that we can't prevent every single crime, mm-hmm. but we could prevent criminal ele- elements that coming through in the future. And that's where... How? Well, if you... If you know who's coming into, um, you know, our, our um, immigration um, department that for, for every single application, we could do background check on people. I mean, that was the argument uh, for not having everybody in from the Middle East coming into our country. Here we have the open border, and people could come in. We don't know who they are, you know. What does your system of background checks require? Um, well, when you're trying to come into the U.S., you have to apply for uh, and get your fingerprint and everything done, right? Sure, but what power do the people conducting those background checks have to have to get their job done? Well, <laughs> that is, uh, I think that is another, uh, I guess, uh, discussion that we need to have. But to say that, uh, you know, we're, we're doing the same thing Democrats doing when it comes to gun cram and we, we're um, taking advantage of this one incident to um, highlight our immigration argument uh, I, I think it's it's not uh, it's not exactly the same because we're saying here is our immigration argument is to enforce making sure that you know the people coming in, into our countries are not criminal element now pr- the fact that we decide uh, Hey, you know, except who who coming in here by what kind of system we are agreeing with that country is mm-hmm. I think there's a a, a different um uh, discussion, but that should be that should also be looked at. All right, I appreciate the thoughts, Thomas. I want to squeeze in Anthony and St. Paul here before we go to break. Appreciate you holding. Hey, no problem. Thanks for taking my call. Yep. Um one thing that really, really bothers me, I don't know if you guys have been paying attention to this, is Elizabeth Warren was on CNN or NBC or one of these liberal, uh, one of these liberal shows, and she was asked about this. She said, what do you think the problem is? Um, do you think that this guy, Christian Rivera, being here illegally was, one of the, was, was a big problem? Mm-hmm. And a key factor, so I'm Ali Tibbetts is dead. So she, so she goes and she says, well, I think we should be... We should really be focusing on real issues like uh, illegal immigrants, not be, or, uh, these immigrants uh, being separated from their kids. And, you know, they haven't been able to talk to their kids in weeks. And I've talked to people that are in this situation. And it just infuriates the crap out of me. I don't normally get emotional based on something a lefty says because they're all crazy. But this, I wanted to... I wanted to reach through the screen and slap her. What are you talking about? This is a terrible thing that happened. This is a serious issue. Right. And all they are doing is playing to their base. They don't give a damn about us. I appreciate your passion, and I, I definitely understand it. I would argue against the grain, against the mold, that both sides are most certainly playing to their base right now. I saw a post from Jason Lewis who we may have on the program here shortly. Jason Lewis, who I've listened to broadcast over this air for years and years, grew up on the guy, one of the one of the top influences in my life. A post from Jason Lewis that looked like it was written 
from the White House or from Steve Bannon or from Stephen Miller talking about how, you know, the, all the, the the rhetoric that you've heard about Molly Tibbetts and w- what this indicates in terms of you know how we need to build the wall and clamp down on immigration, what have you. Now, I did a quick and dirty Google search before the show tonight, and so I can't verify this, but I am 80% certain that when Jason Lewis was on the air talking about these issues, talking about immigration, he was not a hard-line, build-the-wall, anti-immigration guy. If anything, he was more libertarian-leaning on these issues. And so the playing to the base in response to tragedy is something that both sides are more than capable of doing. 651-989-5855, closing argument. My name's Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, com. All right, I want to get to your calls and continue our discussion regarding Molly Tibbetts, illegal immigration, DACA, what have you. But I want to, I want to hit a unrelated story first here and get this analysis out because this is something I've been wanting to talk about since yesterday. Closing argument, my name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, streaming com and your iHeartRadio app. We're here 9 to 11 weeknights. 651-989-5855, the number to join us. Brad Omland taking all those calls and producing the show. So I wanted to touch back on the news from the weekend that the DFL endorsed Keith Ellison for attorney general. And, you know, we could we could talk at length about the, the uh, hypocrisy involved in this. I don't want to take that time because I want to I want to get back to you guys on the phone. Uh, to get get into talking about the Molly Tippett situation. But I do want to at least pause to make this point. You know, the and it's been they've been talking about it on Justice and Drew all week long. It's amazing how the left was willing to sacrifice their own in context where they were not going to lose any actual political power. You know, when when Al Franken was marched off into the sunset. It was in a context where Mark Dayton was going to be able to appoint a Democrat, another reliable Democratic vote, to replace him. So politically, nothing's lost. In terms of the power structure, nothing's lost. They retain their political power. But when it comes to a situation like Keith Ellison, where he's been accused of something that's significantly worse than what Al Franken was accused of doing, they circle the wagons and they rally their troops and they endorse him and everything's A-OK. Why? Because to take the opposite stance, to hold Ellison to the same standard that they held Franken, would mean to endanger their capacity to hold on to the attorney general seat in this state. Well, it's also because Keith Ellison is the deputy chair of the DNC. Right. That's the whole reason the entire thing started, I think. It's my theory that the uh, the case with Karen Monahan started because Keith Ellison wanted to run for president. That's interesting. Why else would he be clearing the skeletons out of his closet? Hmm. Yeah, that's a fair that's a fair theory. The 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 point here that I want to drive home though is that obviously Ellison is a powerful figure, right? Deputy chair of the Democratic National Committee, candidate for attorney general, congressman from the 5th Congressional District of Minnesota. This is a guy who from from a con- from a conventional on paper perspective screams all the things that the left says they hate right establishment patriarchy power 
you know, male dominance, like all the things that they say they hate, this guy is an example of. And yet they're giving him a pass. Why? There's a piece over at the Daily Wire from over the weekend. A feminist administrator has finally admitted that many or what many men and women who have woken up to the abuses of Title IX have known for a while. It was actually intended as a weapon against men. Diane Davis, chair of the Department of Rhetoric at the University of Texas, Austin, has signed on to a letter defending New York University professor Avdel Ranel, a well-known feminist and lesbian, from accusations of sexual harassment. As the Daily Wire previously reported, feminists rushed to back one of their own after she faced accusations of sexual misconduct from a former student. They even went so far as to impugn the motives of the accuser, a gay male, using the same tactics they would otherwise condemn if the accuser were a woman and the accused were a man. And they go in to, to offer up this uh, examples of this. The, the money quote here, Diane Davis, chair of the Department of Rhetoric at the University of Texas, Austin, who also signed the letter to the university supporting Professor Ronell, said she and her colleagues were particularly disturbed that as they saw it, Mr. Reitman, the gentleman in question, the accuser, was using Title IX, a feminist tool, to take down a feminist. This is indicative, just like with the Ellison situation, this is indicative of what we've been talking about on this program for, for weeks at this point, and we'll continue to talk about it because it's important. And that's the fact that the left does not actually care about victims at all. They do not care about minorities. They do not care about victims. They do not care about Me Too. None of the things they say they care about are things that they actually care about. What they actually care about is their revolutionary political agenda. A feminist tool being used to take down a feminist. I'm sorry, I was unaware that Title IX was a feminist tool. I thought it was an effort to actually treat people equally, right? Like that's what it was sold as. Same thing with me, too. Sold as a means to provide women a voice. We ought to believe women. We ought to grant them the benefit of the doubt. Oh, unless they're accusing the deputy chair of the Democratic National Committee, in which case all bets are off and the gloves can come off and we can treat her as disreputable as a result. All the evidence you need to never take any concern expressed by a leftist about victims seriously ever again. All right, let's return to your phone calls. Let's talk to Dan in Hopkins. Welcome to the program. Thanks for holding. Thanks, Walter and Brad. I could talk to you for hours about all this. Um, I'll try to make it as concise as I can. Um, Certainly, well, in the case of Keith, um, gosh, I remember what I called about. Oh, the border. (laughs) I got a note here about Eric Paulson. Yeah, oh. Well, it was really, it was angering at me first, but more I reflect upon it, it is quite funny. When you hear Dean, I don't know if you heard the debate between Dean Phillips and Eric Paulson. It was an excellent debate. And I will, even though Brad, Chad Hartman was such a, he was such a softy with the three women running for Keith, Keith Ellis, Keith Ellison's spot right, in the primary. Yeah, sure. It was a pathetic debate. That was. But this was a pretty good debate. You saw Paulson going after Dean Phillips. There was no, there was no nice guy that's interesting. Uh, I might have to check that out. I didn't wonderful. know Paulson had it in him. Yeah, yeah, I, I did. I was pleasantly surprised. But you know, just a couple of things uh, Dean Phillips said, and I know he's an intelligent guy. 
But I think he was kind of born with a silver spoon. Not born, but he was adopted. His mother remarried after his father died in Vietnam mm-hmm. to a, I mean, a very wealthy family. <clears throat> and so he is a millionaire, and largely by virtue of the fact he grew up in a family that had a very successful business or multiple businesses. But he, among the minimum wage, stupidity, and other things, he thought that he said he was a, he believed in the rule of law, except the law of illegal immigrants having to go back to their home country. And that would be a law that he wouldn't follow because in his arrogance, he knows better mm-hmm. than hundreds of years of precedent that there is some power to the citizen by virtue of, you know, it's the citizens that make laws and have sovereignty, power of sovereignty to decide mm-hmm. what they want for their own country. And if you want to go to that country and live there, then you need to become a citizen there mm-hmm. and come in legally. But he said something else really funny besides that. He said um, that... Uh, um, healthcare is a right. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, <laughs> and and you know, and I wish Paulson would have said something like this. He said, "Well, really, Dean Phillips, that you know, your rights stop when they make when they make demands on other people, mm-hmm. like pulling money forcibly uh, at at the risk of gunpoint mm-hmm. by law, taking money out of your pocket and forcing doctors to service people yeah. that aren't yeah. paying the bill." You know, or you know what I'm saying? Oh yeah, another That's way. Big thing. Another way you could explore that idea is if if healthcare is a right, and you find yourself alone on a desert island out in the middle of nowhere by yourself, how is that right going to be met? <laughs> you know, and and if obviously the end, like you have to provide for yourself in that context. Okay, so somebody else shows up. Somebody else has a shipwreck. They swim to shore. Now there's two of you on the island. Now what are you gonna like? Which one of you has to serve the other, and why? Exactly. And then who determines compensation? A third person is telling you that you have to do this procedure for this person for this much. You know, um, you know, that, that, that happened in the Paulson debate. He didn't attack him and slap him. It's like a a soldier taking all of his armor off and his clothes and say, shoot me, I'm an idiot. That is like (laughs) the dumbest thing a guy can say that it's a right because anybody with a half a brain says that when you're forcing the taxpayer, to subsidize people who don't have health care, health insurance, now it's not a right. Now even, like according to Paul Rand, uh, uh, Rand Paul, you've actually, to some degree, enslaved somebody. Absolutely. To be of service. Absolutely. Ted Cruz didn't take advantage of that either when he was debating Bernie Sanders. Yeah. You know, that is like, that's a knockout punch. No, I agree. that There needs to be much more willingness to to stand on the moral arguments that are are in our favor in, on almost every point i appreciate the call dan closing argument my name is walter hudson twin cities news talk am 1130 1035 fm twin cities news twin cities news talk am 1130 1035 fm closing argument my name is Walter Hudson, 651-989-5855 to get a comment here before we uh, sign off for the evening. Let's go to Sam in Plymouth. Thanks for holding. Hey, Walter. Thanks for having me on. Um, so I was reading about this Molly Tibbetts case, and it reminded me of something that happened almost exactly a year ago in Virginia. Um, a young woman was killed by a man who happened to be illegal. Um except that her name was Nabra Hassanen, mm-hmm. and it made waves in my community because mm-hmm. we're quite small. 
And uh, it shows the hypocrisy of how these tragedies are used by both the right and the left to form political talking points. Because I do not remember her case being such a rallying cry against illegal immigration on the yeah. right. Yeah. And once it turned out that the perpetrator was an illegal immigrant from Guatemala, right. you could hear the crickets as the left left the room. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, Abs- you're absolutely right. And it, it, there's, it, it is infuriating to a certain degree that when when you're dealing with a situation like this like as soon as before we even knew the particulars as this story was developing yesterday just the fact that the they found her body which was the first thing they reported is that they found her body uh, after a long search and then came the news that they had arrested somebody and then came the news the big news that he was an illegal immigrant and as the story was trickling out in that effect you know I saw her picture the the picture that we've all seen uh, attached to these articles regarding Molly Tibbetts and the first question that popped in my head and I hate the fact that it popped in my head but it was the first question I have to be honest of what the first thing I thought was when I saw her picture was would we be hearing about this if she wasn't a pretty young white girl and, and you know it's it's leftist kind of thinking right because it's reducing things down to identity right but a lot of these arguments rely on identity on the other side right 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 so and you know i guess as some people are in a unique position to see the hypocrisy in both ways and that's all i really had is i just you know i thought wanted to get your thoughts on that case and it's parallel so look i i appreciate the call sam and i appreciate you holding to make that point and look i think an effort to get outside your own perspective, and more than just your own perspective, but to get outside of your tribe's perspective, to whether it's a political tribe or a racial tribe or whatever the case may be, and to to try to see things objectively, even when it doesn't work for your agenda, when it doesn't work for you politically, I think that's always a worthwhile endeavor. Because the it if nothing else, if if the only thing you gain from it is a clearer understanding of reality then it's a winning proposition. And so that's what I've been trying to drive you towards tonight. For better or worse, maybe you like it, maybe you hate it. <laughs> but, yeah, it is what it is, and I hope you found some value in it. Let's talk to Leland in Minneapolis. Welcome to the program. Hi, how you doing? Good. Um, I did some sociological research uh, trying to determine whether uh, out in the Middle East, because of all the stuff that was going on, all the persecution was was that the worst place that domestic abuse was occurring? And when I did my Google search, what had come up with the numbers and the statistics of people who had, uh, women who had been killed by their significant others, it was South America, Central America. So I did more research to find out, you know, why, and I talked with some members in the community because I know a lot of different people, a variety of people, and I talked to a couple of women from South America, and I asked them about it, and I said, why do you think that that is? And, and they said it's because uh, it's more socially acceptable and that a lot of the women are afraid to call law enforcement because they won't do anything. They just they just think it's kind of like it's between you guys, that's the way it is. And I think what happens is that uh, when these guys come up here, I don't know if you remember when some of the Somali men first came and they were doing that kind of stuff, they were shocked to find out that they could go to jail for beating their wife. Right. And right. and they had no they were like, What are you doing? I'm I haven't done nothing. I just beat her and they and they had to explain to them like, no, in America we don't do that. Right. And you know, so like here, it's gotta be under the table because most of us men here in America 
we over the years have been told we don't hit girls when we're young. They, your mom, your dad, they tell you, you are not allowed to hit girls. You get in trouble. You grow up learning that. Mm-hmm. And most of us men here would not even be friends with a man if we knew that he openly beat his wife or his girlfriend. He would right. have to keep that a secret because we would not allow him to be a friend of ours. Mm-hmm. You know, so, I mean, I think maybe the, the re- one of the reasons why I think the wall is a good idea See, Trump is a deal maker, and I don't remember, know if people remember what he said. He said, build the wall, but make a big, big door. So that he wants to make the door bigger. What it Sounds is, like is Noah. Like, at least if you could bring these people in, you could say, look, in America, we don't, we know the statistics where you come from. We don't do that here. All right. I appreciate the point, Leland. He gets the last word. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. We'll see you tomorrow, 9 to 11 weeknights, TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com.